With the departure of Sean Connery after Diamonds Are Forever, the Bond movie producers finally got to work with a man who had always been high on their hit list. The Roger Moore era was about to begin with Live and Let Die. I'm Stephen Archibald and welcome to my movie podcast. Welcome to my podcast, They Came From Within, Cult Movie Reviews, Magical Mystery Tour, Live and Let Die, 1973, Roger Moore, the lovable super smoothie and master of the raised eyebrow, got to play the third James Bond on the big screen in Live and Let Die, the eighth official Bond film. The director, Guy Hamilton, would have liked Burt Reynolds to play 007 in this picture. But when the producer Broccoli approached him, Reynolds declined the offer. Broccoli then insisted that Bond should be played by an Englishman. It's said to be the same reason Clint Eastwood gave when he also turned down the part. Roger Moore's commitment to making the TV series The Persuaders had prevented him from being considered for Diamonds Are Forever. There was no such impediment for him doing Live and Let Die. Black themed movies such as Shaft and Lady Sings the Blues were proving very popular in this era and the Black Panther movement was certainly in the headlines. When Tom Mankiewicz was given sole screenwriting duties, he knew that adapting Ian Fleming's second Bond novel from 1954 would be ideal in a time of such cultural change. This is the movie where Bond finds himself up against Dr. Kananga, the corrupt ruler of a Caribbean island called San Monique, a man who disguises himself as the crime boss Mr. Big, so as to flood America with his heroin in order to put other drug lords out of business and to weaken American society. So this results in Live and Let Die being as much a black exploitation movie as it is a spy adventure. There are plenty of black characters, most of whom sadly are villainous, but at least there are a few imposing and memorable characters among them. Kananga himself is portrayed by the sublime actor Yafet Koto. His grinning right-hand man Tihi with the mechanical pincer for an arm is played here by a wonderfully callous Julius Harris. And then there's the unforgettable performance of Jeffrey Holder as the chilling voodoo priest Baron Samedi, aka the Prince of Darkness. It's so ironic 
that Holder was afraid of snakes in real life. And stereotypes aside, these men provide the film with a deeply cool vibe. Sticking with the subject of race, Mankiewicz did something quite bold, quite progressive with this movie. He created the black CIA agent Rosie Carver, portrayed by Gloria Hendry. She became the first African-American character to sleep with James Bond on screen. Thankfully, this is no big deal today, but even as late as the early 1970s, interracial sex in a mainstream movie was virtually unheard of, and Gloria certainly played her part in the growing popularity of the exploitation genre. She appeared in such key movies as Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, Slaughter's Big Ripoff, and Black Belt Jones. Oh, she was also in Across 110th Street with Yefet Koto. Originally written as a white woman, the new Rosie Carver character changed ethnicity. When the producers turned down Mankiewicz's request to have the part of Solitaire be played by a black actress, he even had Diana Ross in mind for the part. After considering the divine French actress Catherine Deneuve, the role of Solitaire, Kananga's virginal psychic, went to the 21-year-old Jane Seymour, who was proving rather popular in the historical drama series The Oneidin Line at this time. And for me, Miss Seymour is one of the most beautiful, most enchanting Bond women of them all. It's actually another great English beauty who played the first Bond woman of the Roger Moore era. Madeline Smith appears as Miss Caruso, the Italian agent Bond is seen with near the start of the picture. She's the lady whose dress he unzips with his magnetic watch, and this gadget happened to be Roger Moore's favourite of the entire series. It was Moore himself who suggested Madeline for the part. She appeared with him and Tony Curtis in an episode of The Persuaders called The Long Goodbye, one which was directed by Roger himself. Rosie Carver and Miss Caruso weren't the only new characters created for the movie. Mankiewicz also brought in the comical redneck sheriff J.W. Pepper, a part memorably played by Clifton James. He reprised the role in The Man with the Golden Gun the following year, and even got to play slight variations of the character in Silver Streak from 1976 and Superman 2 from 1980. Clifton passed away on the 15th of April 2017 at the age of 96, just 38 days before we lost the great Roger Moore. The lead villain in the Live and Let Die novel was not called Kananga. The name was given to Yafet Koto's character as a thank you 
to Ross Kananga. Ross was the owner of a Jamaican crocodile farm, one which displayed the notorious yet hilarious sign, trespassers will be eaten. It was Ross Kananga who doubled as Roger Moore's Bond in the celebrated scene where he races across a line of crocodiles. David Hedison, who starred in the cult sci-fi series Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, plays James's CIA friend, Felix Leiter. It's in Fleming's Live and Let Die novel that Leiter suffers a mauling by a shark. Something which does not happen in this movie. However, this startling attack on Felix does occur in the 1989 bomb flick, License to Kill. And it was David Hedison who returned to play the part, making him the only actor to play Felix Leiter more than once at this stage. Incidentally, this is the only Roger Moore Bond movie in which the Leiter character appears. On the subject of age, Roger Moore was 45 years old when he started playing 007, making him the oldest man to do so. And Yefet Koto was merely 33 years old at the start of filming, thus making him the youngest actor to be cast as the main Bond villain. Harry Saltzman deeply regretted turning down the opportunity to produce the Beatles 1964 movie, A Hard Day's Night. So, with the regular composer John Barry unavailable, due to working on the musical version of Billy Liar, Saltzman was provided with a means of making amends. Written by Paul McCartney and his wife Linda, the Live and Let Die theme tune proved to be an audacious amalgamation of various musical styles with a constantly shifting tempo. Despite being more akin to a rock opera track, it suited the movie perfectly. The great rock band Queen would pretty much take the same approach on their brilliant Bohemian Rhapsody single two years later. The movie's solid film score was provided by the Beatles producer, George Martin. Poor Roger Moore really suffered for his art on this film. During the boat chase scene, he twisted his ankle and cracked his teeth. At another stage, during production, he was hospitalised with kidney stones. Further still, he suffered from dysentery. Movie makings, clearly not all glamour. Live and Let Die was shot between the 13th of October 1972 and the 15th of March 1973. It's said to be the first Bond movie Daniel Craig saw, and from the pre-multiple channel days, it holds the UK record for having the biggest movie viewing audience figure, 23.5 million viewers. When it was shown on ITV on the 20th of January, 1980. I'm Stephen Archibald, and thank you for listening to my podcast, They Came From Within, Cult Movie Reviews. You can find all my episodes on Audible, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes, and a whole range of other providers. Please take care of yourself, and goodbye for now.